0: Welcome to the Perioperative Nutrition Podcast, sharing knowledge with clinicians to ensure all patients are ready for surgery. This six-episode series is sponsored by Abbott Nutrition, and here's your host, Dr. Paul Wishmeyer of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Wishmeyer hosting another episode of the Surgical Nutrition Podcast Series. Uh, Again, I am a professor of anesthesiology and surgery here at Duke and, and direct the nutrition and TPN service for Duke, and I am... Really thrilled to have a true legend in the field of, of surgical and perioperative nutrition, Dr. Bob Martindale, who is the Chief of General and Gastrointestinal Surgery at Oregon Health Sciences Center and Medical School in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Bob.
1: Glad to be here.
0: No, it's great to have you.
1: I don't know if I'm a legend. It sounds like I'd be dead if I'm <laughs> a legend. The thing that, that we really are
0: excited to talk to you about today uh, and for our listeners to hear about is is your long-standing career long passion and interest in the role of perioperative nutrition to improve clinical outcomes in patients and and your vast experience, both as clinician, researcher, and and impassioned speaker and advocate for the role of nutrition in improving outcomes in surgery. Maybe you can start and tell us a little bit about your views on this and, 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 and how your feelings around it.
1: Yeah, well, it truly has been my passion for the last, uh, and I hate to say, almost 40 years now. Uh, you know, I finished my nutrition training at UCLA uh, many years ago, and soon after that, we became became interested in the idea of using specific nutrients or specialized formulas, and that was in the 80s and when there was lots of new ideas and, you know, renal formulas and liver formulas and all these specific diseases. And then in the 90s came some interesting work out of the burn center in Cincinnati saying that maybe an arginine fish oil-containing formula could improve burn outcomes. And then that sort of progressed to Marco Braga's legendary work in, uh, in Milan, Italy, in whipples and esophagectomies and difficult, pre-op, uh, difficult perioperative nutritional problem patients, that he could show that he could significantly lower the, the metabolic and infectious complications in those patients by using this formula. And I think it's, it's sort of snowballed from there. And now, as you know, we've got uh, virtually 100 prospective randomized trials in this area, uh, and they continue to come out. So I think it's an area which we've got now an overwhelming amount of data to prove that it works. Uh, You know, not in every patient and certainly not for minor surgery. Certainly if you have an inguinal hernia and you're going home the same day, you're probably not going to make a difference because you're going to eat when you go home. So, I mean, but patients, uh, that we can not only enhance their outcome or improve their outcome in surgery, we can shorten their length of stay now, <clears throat> but also, you know, we talk about preventing problems. Also, I think it's not just uh, improving immune system, it's also metabolically in the patient's response to that surgery. I think that's the key thing that Marco Braga showed early, and we've continued to show that, is that if we load the patient with these nutrients, we can literally decrease the metabolic response to that stressful surgery. And to me, that's the exciting part, that we're actually changing metabolic response and not just enhancing immune system, but changing the metabolic response.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's, I think the potential for us to – make a difference, like you're saying, in patients with this high impact, low risk, low cost intervention is tremendous. So I know you've trained many, many young surgeons over the years and in, in all the places you've been and all the work you've done. If you were educating or when you do educate your young surgeons, your young anesthesiologists and the people you work with on how one might uh, apply this knowledge and, and like you said, now over a hundred trials demonstrating that this is beneficial to patients and improve outcomes. H- how would you how would you practically suggest they they incorporate this into their practice?
1: Yeah, that's you know it's interesting. Uh, you know, I moved from medical college of Georgia in two thousand five to Oregon, slightly bigger program. We actually graduate thirteen chiefs a year now here, so it's uh, either wow. the biggest or second biggest program in the country for surgical training. And I thought, well, you know, they're very progressive out in Oregon. You know, they're sort of a blue state. They're willing to listen <laughs> to others, and and uh, so I thought, well, that will be easy. And I got out here, and it literally took me a year to get in incorporation so that this immune modulation and metabolic modulation was part of the routine for our major surgical cases. And then, but one, it's interesting because it took a while to get it in the system and get people mm-hmm. using it. To where now it's routine, and now, in fact, that it's like so routine that if somebody doesn't use it, you know, that they wonder what happened here? What, where was our error? You know, what was our problem? And so we've got uh, systems to catch it that don't use it. So we, we now routinely give this immune modulating concept five days pre op to patients that are undergoing whipples, esophagectomies, and complex colorectal. And then there's a few other selective ones, those are automatic. So it's, now it's becomes sort of automatic, and it seems almost interesting to me to look back and say, why was it such a problem to get going? But it is a problem to get going. And so when I try to teach young people, I first teach them, try to teach them the science, which we, of course, have the time with the residents. And then, you know, the anesthesia residents rotate through our service, and they also then cover pre-op clinics. And so they now are aware of the importance and, and actually encourage it. And they're our best advocates now.
0: Yeah, that's 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 remarkable. That you know, basically, what you're saying is, is in your major academic uh, center, it's the norm for patients to get immune nutrition, and it would be an oddity or an unusual patient that wouldn't get it. And and I think that's a step. I think a lot of us, both in academic centers and community hospitals around the country, are working to make. But but as you said, we sometimes face barriers. This is new knowledge. We know that. Medical schools aren't aren't teaching clinical nutrition to the majority of our our students, and so it's not something they inherently get. And so what 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 did you do to overcome some of the barriers? and what were some of the barriers you found in that first year to 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 getting this to be routine in your care?
1: Yeah, I think the first big barrier was not so much the clinic uh, nursing staff resistance. It was an education based to the residents to make sure they ordered it, not to forget. And also, the you know, the nurses are the ones that keep us straight so them to remind us that we don't order it. But also, the probably the bigger problem was the logistics of it, of the ability mm-hmm. to get this so the patient actually gets it in their hands. You know, we service for a significant number of engine care, and, you know, that's mm-hmm. about anywhere between 30 and $50, depending on where you buy this stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. whether you have a drop ship to your house or whatever. So you know, even getting it in our own formula, you know, we have this problem with giving it to people at cost. So what I do uh, is I use foundation money to just get 20 cases of stuff and have it available. And when someone can't afford it, we just give it to them. Because you know, we the hospital has been very supportive, and you know, they can see when I went to the executive board and showed that look, here here's where the costs are. Here's what we save. And so I think we should be giving this stuff to people that can't afford it, and they say fine. And so when you show them the numbers, everybody says, "Why would you not do this?" You know. So I mean, one infection, we save one perioperative infection in a deep space in an esophagus or pancreas. You paid for hundreds of people to get this formula.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really remarkable. You know, it's. You I think you stated that really beautifully. You you and and Dr. Michael Scott wrote a, a really brilliant editorial in the recent anesthesia and analgesia uh, issue from the the june issue in anesthesia and analgesia where you you had an editorial titled paraoperative nutrition a high impact low risk low cost intervention and for the listeners you can find this online it's it's free to download and and, and you even state some of this data that that you know, for every dollar we spend on these kinds of oral nutrition supplements, there's data that show we can save $52 in hospital costs. And I think, like you said, one surgical infection in a large major surgical case, like you said, pays for hundreds of patients. And so it sounds like you've had some success going to your hospital administrators. And I've heard this story at other places, University of Indiana and others who've had success getting administrators to pay for this. Do you think that's the future one of the futures that all of us should be striving towards?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that, Now, I, I can say that if the patient has the resources, I see no trouble. They can get it for, like I say, around $30, I think, or $35. They now charge our outpatient pharmacy. There's actually a place in town that people can buy it for $31. But if they have the money, great, because insurance doesn't cover it currently. But I, I would love to see the insurance carriers say this is cost effective. And, you know, we've actually approached uh, insurance carriers, and they haven't been too excited about this. You know, if they had a prescription for a perioperative period, and you'd say, you know, because the cost is virtually nothing. Our hospital pays about 25 bucks for it for five days. And I tried to sell it at cost, but I was not very successful because there's a (laughs) stocking fee and blah, 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 you know. So, uh, but I, I don't think the the cost is not a big issue. I think it'd be great if every hospital paid for it and just gave it to everybody to get major surgery. There's got to be people that are willing to educate why it's important. And I think, you know, which is interesting, if the nurse just says, oh, on the way out, the doctor wants you to get the stuff and drink it for five days before surgery. That doesn't work. We've actually tried that in the early days. In the late 90s, we were doing big prospective trials and with a formula, a similar formula which is into the, what we have today, it, it was not quite as good because the fish oil wasn't encapsulated. So it was a little hard to get people to drink it. Their cats loved it, but the people didn't like it much. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and now, that, now that the fish oil is encapsulated, you can't taste the fish oil. But anyway, people now drink it in trouble. If the nurse just says that they'll pick this up on your way out today, you know, about half the time it gets picked up. If the physician who sits there, who's talking to them about their surgery, and says, "Now, you know, tomorrow or next week, or I mean next week, we're going to have a big operation. Here's what you need to do pre-op. You got to make sure you don't ever touch a cigarette. You got to make sure you go get this formula that's going to help your immune system." And once the people get the concept that they are actually potentially making their outcome better, and this is up to them to do it, they are all over it, and they. They will then say, "Where do you buy it? How much does it cost? When can I get it?" You know that kind of thing. But if the doctor doesn't say anything to them, it's going to be doing the operation, they, it's not as not as accepted by the patient.
0: So I think what you're saying is, and I think you know, a lot of dietitians are are the ones advocating for this in the hospital. Is the dietitians and the, and the perioperative nurses who so often are the advocates for this really need to identify and and build up a physician champion and and probably many physician champions in their surgical group to say, this is just as important as the pre-op antibiotics or the pre-op smoking cessation or or any of the other therapeutics that 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 the patient does and that is what the key to compliance and I think that's always been the challenge is and we actually write prescriptions for it so that you know we give them the prescription for their pre-op antibiotics we give them the prescription for what other pre-op pain meds they may need and then we write a prescription for their immunonutrition and for their pre-op nutrition supplements um, whether it's a high protein nutrition supplement or or, or nutrition supplement so it's Sounds like you're doing the same thing and found that that's what the real key to success is.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's truly a team effort. So they're, they're, they're told several times, once by the doctor counseling about their surgery at the pre-op mm-hmm. clinic when they get to the, you know, talk to the anesthesia service pre-op and also by the nurse leaving the clinic. So they've heard it three times and then they start to go, gee, this must be good.
0: And do you have your patients, And know I always get the question, and, and you, I'm, I've heard you speak about it many times, um, do we just give it before surgery? Do we give it after surgery? Um, is one better than the other?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, depending on the patient, if the patient's perfectly healthy, the data would say we probably don't need to give it post-op if everything goes well with surgery. I think if the patient comes in with some, some malnutrition or some compromise, then we should give it pre and post. That data is pretty good. The Marco Braga's data is the best for just pre-op. He did a you know three-leg study where he did one standard of care, two with just pre-op, three with pre-op and post-op in a well-nourished population who had lost, le- you know, lost less than ten pounds and and several criteria. Albumins are greater than three point two, and I don't remember the de- all the details now. But basically, that was one published in two thousand two. In gastroenterology, so he took a well-nourished population and showed that in the well-nourished population who has an uneventful major surgery, they don't need a post-op. If you take someone who's got some nutritional compromise, they do better with pre and post.
0: And so that's that's the other question. I think you really addressed it well. Is is I'll often hear, and, and I've heard you talk about, is this just for the malnourished patient, or is this for everybody? You know, how do you address that?
1: I can tell you that that I had some surgery not too long ago, relatively minor, and I know a buddy of mine, Steve McClave, had a hip replacement. And, you (laughs) know, hip replacement nowadays are day surgery almost, you know. And and we drank it, believe me. (laughs) You know, so we drank the Kool-Aid of our own (laughs) Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Now we just need to get everybody else to drink the Kool-Aid.
1: Yeah, I think the metabolic modulation concept we miss sometimes because everybody goes, oh, it's immune-enhancing. So, you know, and you go, well, i got a normal immune system. I'm not going to bother. But it's that metabolic modulation. It's the a concept that for the same exact identical insult that you can lower that response with the fish oil concept. And now we know so much more about fish oils that we actually enhance the resolution of inflammation. We know that the fish oils go on to produce these specialized pro-resolving mediators or resolvins. And those resolvins actually decrease the pain. Now we've got two papers, really brand new, recent papers, showing that with the use of fish oil in the period, we lower the pain of the patient. That's huge, like a no-brainer. So not only do we get it's all the huge. metabolic stuff, we get decreased pain, shortened hospital stay, less inflammation. You know, it just makes sense.
0: It's been a huge addition to literature, and I think it's part of the literature most people don't know. Even even those in the nutrition field, I think, are just hearing that. Gosh. There's so much more to this like than you said, just the fact that we need to support the immune dysfunction that occurs after surgery and prevent infection. But like you said, we're manipulating metabolism. We're improving pain scores. I've even heard perhaps we're reducing DVTs, possibly some of the big data sets are implying because of the effects of arginine. And, and so I think there's so many exciting directions and so many benefits for our patients that, that, that this could have. I guess, are there other things nutritionally that... that you think about with your patients? Uh, how have you begun to work towards nutrition screening, and, and are there other nutrition interventions that you do in, say, higher risk patients?
1: Yeah, we, uh, you know, of course, we're using cross-sectional imaging now and getting a high risk, like, the you know, the, obviously, sarcopenic obesity, we know now is our highest risk group, and almost all of these Whipples and subjections are getting a staging CT scan, so we have that data. So that's being used. If we have that, we, we usually have it, you know, you know, three weeks to a month before surgery, even these big cases, by the time they get worked up and their CTs and their consults and everything. So we actually mm-hmm. put them on an exercise program and a high-protein diet for two to mm-hmm. three weeks, whatever we've got before surgery, and then five days before we switch them to this immune modulating formulations.
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds exactly the, the program we're working to start here at Duke as well, where we're doing the same. We're trying to screen them about a month out with the typical Aspen ADA malnutrition criteria that we've built into this PON score we published in that same anesthesia and analgesia issue. And then we too are trying to start up a exercise program that combines with a high protein oral nutrition supplement or ENRPN, depending on what the patient needs to try it for the month before surgery intervene on them. So it sounds like we're all... Thinking very similarly, if, have have you had good success in 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 adding the CT scan though? It sounds like to look at lean body mass and. And do you have cutoffs you use for sarcopenia, or how do, you, how do you clinically apply the data you get from the CT scan?
1: Yeah, you know, it, we have had success. And, you know, as, you know when you look at the CT, you could almost look at it and say, oh, look at all that marbling in the paraspinous muscles, and look at their shrinking down, mm. and look at the amount yep. of fat mass. So you can almost get a gut feeling. But now that the, the software is actually free from that, you know, I think it was January issue of 2016. Well, it was, yep. you know, we can get it for free. The first time I bought this software is $5,000, you know, and now yep. it's free software. So we can actually get it and use it. We uh, used, just published a paper last month on in, in non-malignant disease showing it's probably not as critical, but I know that Jay Patel has now got a couple articles looking at the quality of the muscle by looking at the amount of fat actually in the muscle. You know, so that's going to probably be the next wave is we're going to refine the idea of just cross-sectional volume. We're going to refine it and look at, you know, Hounsfield units and say, aha, this is fatty-replaced muscle, and that's going to give us even a higher risk. So I think the concept of cross-sectional imaging is well-received. Our dietitians now at Nutrition Rounds will say, well, we looked at their cross-sectional imaging, and, you know, it's pretty shocking uh, to think well how far we've come to have our dietitians now using c t wow. imaging to help with their assessment,
0: boy, for all the dietitians listening, this is an exciting new area to to hear that this is becoming reality for all of us to possibly have our dietitians and our our nurses and our nutrition teams be able to themselves look at this data and so what you're describing just for the audience is are you using the sliceomatic software? yes, yes. That sounds like the slice o software, which now it sounds as though I've heard, too, you can get as, as freely available. And The other things that we've just heard in the last few weeks is there's now an automated version that you can pay a little extra for that will partially automate the analysis and, and make it much faster uh, for the analysis. And The other thing I just heard the other day, which excited me, is one of our radiologists told me they now can do single-cut CTs and only get L3, and it exposes the patient to less radiation than a chest X-ray so that we can do sarcopenia measurements, not as part of a routine CT, which of course you're right, we get in all the big surgeries, but if we wanted to follow it or get it in another patient, they now have technology where they can do a single slice CT of the L3 and get us only nutrition information and expose them to trivial radiation. And, and we can maybe someday finally get nutrition-focused CTs with minimal risk to the patient. We, I, I haven't seen this in action yet, but we're going to do some research, I think, coming soon and maybe even start a clinical program to try to take advantage of that. But it sounds like you're way ahead. You've got dietitians reading your CTs already. And I think that's a real call to action and exciting chance for all of our dietitians to have objective nutrition data. And I think the quality piece of the muscle is so key.
1: Sure, I agree.
0: So the dietitians must be pretty excited about that, I would guess.
1: Yeah, they, they are. I have to say, I think, you know, I think the dietitians today are much different than they were 20 years ago. We've got now they're, they're very much interested in the clinical science, and they're, they're, they're young scientists, you know. They're out there asking the questions and kind of pushing the doctors, and the doctors that were trained many years ago are looking like, what the hell? You know, so I think it's a, it's a new era. You know, it's a new era when when you yes. hear a dietitian go, "Well, if you look at the cross section of you have L three, and you'll see that this patient's at very high risk." And the guys looking like, What?"
0: Yeah, that yeah, it's it's really I, I, for all the dietitians out there. You really are m- the future of, of of nutrition care, and and like you said, you are the young scientists. Because again, as we've said, three quarters of American medical schools aren't teaching doctors clinical nutrition, and so you are the you are the champion. You are the, you are the, the knowledge base for, for the care of patients today. And so I think this is just another opportunity to, to build on the already amazing job our dietitians do. Any other words around nutritional things you do? I know you, you, you do some probiotic stuff, and I know you're using some high-protein or nutrition supplements. Any comments around those?
1: You know, I'm almost a fanatic, with, as you know, with the probiotics. <laughs> Yeah, we routinely give probiotics with our bowel preps now, based on some literature mm-hmm. in 2015, mm-hmm. which has progressed. You know, so they'll get they'll take a bowel prep, but then they'll get probiotics with that bowel prep, and we've the literature has shown support for that. And uh, and of course, we give perioperative uh, probiotics we're a strong believer in prevention for C. diff is better than treatment of C. diff. And we know that, you yeah. know, probiotics are a week thick once you've got the disease, but it's preventing the disease the literature is, as well as last week's literature on a huge studies, 6,000 patients. And in December, 2017, we have great data in gastroenterology on a 7,000 patient uh, meta-analysis where it showed basically the same thing. If you give it on day one, uh, post op but did you get an antibiotic and virtually you eliminate C diff.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. And are you combining that? You know, there was the big nature paper that showed that a probiotic prebiotic combination could reduce uh, infection, sepsis, respiratory infections in many thousands of infants in, in, in India, which is amazing, right? And and so do you do you do some prebiotic combinations as well?
1: Oh yeah, we do. We are big believers in and, uh, you know, I I hate to say it, but we're big believers in the concept that we need to get back to the basics. You know, we need to give a good mixture of prebiotic soluble and insoluble fibers. We're a little cautious in the perioperative period with the insoluble fibers, and we're fine with soluble fibers, but so we're a little cautious with insoluble because we wait for motility before giving an insoluble fiber. Gotcha.
0: And then any other – that was really a, a great paper, that, that clinical nutrition, uh, surgical nutrition guidelines – any other big recommendations that came out of that that you think the audience should be aware of that, that, that you found compelling?
1: Yeah, I think the high protein data is still very strong, you know, and I think leucine, uh, you know, I don't give routine leucine supplements, but I tell my elderly population that certainly exercise with a protein intake is critical and they're not going to do well with it. It takes both of those, not just one. So, I mean, we mm-hmm. literally get people on ventilator out of, ventilators out of bed.
0: Yeah, and that was in the guidelines that we did in the anesthesia and anesthesia issue. That was one of our strongest recommendations, that all the perioperative patients should be getting high protein, more than 1.2 grams per kilo to deal with the metabolic stress of their major operations. And I think that's a push all of us can make that's a simple, practical push using the high-protein oral nutrition supplements that are widely available in the markets today and the other interventions we have.
1: We're actually shooting for two grams uh, we, we sometimes don't get that high, but we like two grams per kilo in the perioperative period.
0: Yeah, that's usually my goal, too. And so I think if we can get people all pushed towards that direction, I think it sounds like we'll do a lot of good things. And then the next piece is how we combine that with with exercise. And and I actually encourage my patients, the ones that, that lose a fair bit of weight, that are willing, the, the branched-chain amino acids containing leucine, I often encourage them to take them at night before they go to bed there's some data in the elderly that show that can improve muscle mass 17 to 20% because it's you know you're anabolic overnight and but but I think that's that's something else that needs some more work if we could if you could summarize sort of the key thing you, you would want a listener to take away to really advocate for change in their hospital what would it be would it be the immunonutrition pathways what what would it be
1: i would say the concept of metabolic modulation to optimize outcome is the key and i think the data is overwhelming whether it be preoperative lowering metabolic response to stress or whether it be the immune mm-hmm. benefits of the arginine or whether it's the emerging benefits of nucleic acids. I mean, we, we're learning more every day about all three of them. So
0: so really getting that, that five days before surgery, five to seven days before surgery with the immunotrition supplement would, would really be the thing that you would, would key on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I suppose... All of us wish we, we, we did better and better on the malnutrition screening, but it sounds like you're really seeing, to summarize, the CT scan is, is, a, is a big future for our abilities to to help diagnose our patients and, and, and objectively measure their risk.
1: Yes. Yes. I think if a patient has a CT, I'm, I'm probably not to the area yet where we'd order a CT just for nutrition, but maybe with this new data on the L3, single-shot L3, that might be a future. But right now, if you have a CT, which, of course, most big operations in today's world have a CT scan.
0: Yeah, for sure. Any other final words of, of wisdom or inspiration for, for the dietitians and, and young physicians and, and others trying to push to champion the implementation of, of this kind of care?
1: No, I think just uh, learn the science, and, and uh, it'll be accepted by the old dogs like me, you know. It's hard to get them to change, but they'll do if you learn, teach them well enough and you show them the science. And hang in there, because sometimes it takes some time.
0: Yeah. Change is, change is a tough thing. Passion, purpose, and perseverance, right?
1: Yes, yes. This has been really great,
0: Bob. I always always enjoy talking with you and and, and really have um, been honored to be able to speak with you so many times. And, and uh, thanks for taking the time to help enlighten our audience and, and, and hopefully continue to help improve the care of our surgical patients.
1: Great, Paul. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the DCRI's Perioperative Nutrition Podcast. Sponsored by Abbott Nutrition. More episodes are available on SoundCloud and DCRI.org.